Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we jump into the episode, Lynn and I wanted to make sure you were aware of a unique opportunity. That's right, Serene. Right now, Northern is offering a $50 Amazon gift card to everyone who applies and is accepted for the upcoming fall quarter. That's awesome. You know, I've been at seminary for a couple of years now, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed is the opportunity to be part of Northern Live. Uh, When I first started at Northern, I didn't have many local seminary opportunities, and Northern Live gave me the ability to be live over Zoom for uh, the teaching that takes place so I could actually interact with my professors and the other students in my cohort. And so that's been a wonderful part of being a student at Northern. Lynn, why do you think our listeners should think about Northern Seminary for their seminary education? Well, I think Northern really cares about the world and sees others through gospel lens. There's a commitment to gospel truth as evangelicals but compassionate action, which is also historically evangelical, um, this full and joyful flourishing that we want all of our students to enjoy. Biblical and theological studies, not for their own sake, but to make the world a better place in Jesus' name. That's what Northern is about. Mm, I love that. So listeners, if you want to be a part of Northern's goal to make the world a better place in Jesus name, you can take advantage of this unique chance. And you can um, have an opportunity to get a $50 Amazon gift card after getting accepted for the fall quarter. So go ahead over to seminary.edu slash AJ apply to schedule some time with a member of our admission team, or you can start your application today. So again, that's seminary.edu slash A-J-A-P-P-L-Y. Now, sit back and get ready for today's episode. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is speaking with Dr. Lucy Pepia. Lucy is the principal of Westminster Theological Center. Her research interests are Christ in the Spirit, Charismatic Theology, Discipleship, and 1 Corinthians. Her books include Unveiling Paul's Women, Women and Worship in Corinth, and Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. She is currently writing A Cascade Companion on the Imago Day. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Alabaster Jar. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks, Lynn. It's great to be here. Well, I I have so appreciated our friendship over the years as we've met uh, sometimes at uh, conferences and, Mm -hmm. and all of that. So it's great to connect. And I'd love for our listeners to hear a bit of your story, um, your journey in the academy, how you fell in love with theology. Mm. Yeah, well, it was a bit of an unexpected turn, I think, in my life. It wasn't something I did when I was younger. So my first degree was in English literature and language, and uh, I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't until my 30s that I started even studying theology um, properly. And even then, I think I started it really to try and be a better pastor, that's, you know, I thought, well, I'll do a theology degree because that will help me be a better preacher and a better pastor and 
Um, I'm a lay minister in the Church of England. Um, but as I continued on with my studies and I went from doing a bachelor's degree to doing a master's degree in systematic theology, and then I, I really got the bug for theology. You know, and I just thought, oh, if I could if I could keep doing this for the rest of my life, I would be very happy. And I was fortunate to meet Murray Ray, who uh, strongly encouraged me to do a PhD. And uh, I embarked on that, but again, really with no big plan. I, I didn't think, oh, I'm doing this in order to uh, become this or that. And I was in my 40s then and never really imagined I would have in, in any sense a sort of academic career. And uh, and then by a sort of Holy Spirit series of events, <laughs> ended up falling into being the principal of a college, which is really honestly not a joke. So, um, so I here I am and uh, have written books and um, love I love my work I, lo I love running a college I love having the opportunity to write and to think and to uh, I feel I have wonderful colleagues and peers all over the world who you know help me to think better um, so yeah that's a little bit of my background well you certainly help me think better I love your work <laughs> and uh, you're you you take on the hard stuff I have to say you are quite <laughs> fearless we're going to dive in uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We may also uh, wander some into chapter 14. I'm letting the listeners know because they might want to pull out their Bible or mm -hmm. uh, take a look at, at that. But um, as I, when we think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we often think of the uh, verse 3 where we have the word head, kephale, talked about. Mm -hmm. And volumes and volumes over the centuries have been written on that. But I'd actually like to start in the middle of this section, 1 Corinthians mm. chapter 11, verse 7, where mm. Paul talks about image of God. And he, he writes this, um, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And you have written a couple of books on chapter 11, uh, the first half of chapter 11, and you're currently working on that image of God uh, to help us understand image of God in a book that's that's not yet published. Um, so I'd love to reflect first on image of God, that language image of God, image and glory of God in 1 Corinthians 11. And then hopefully um, at the end of the conversation, we'll also pick up more broadly your research on image of God. But can you talk just a little bit maybe from your own personal side, how you got interested in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Yes, I, I first got interested in 1 Corinthians 11 because as a principal of a college, obviously I was a, myself was a woman in leadership and mostly to with the evangelical constituency, I'm an evangelical and m most of our students are. And uh, many of them, not in a hostile way, but would ask me, but what do you think about women in leadership and, and what do you do with the verses of Paul because I think I'm sure you know and I'm sure your listeners know we're in a very different position 
in the UK in terms of women in leadership from in the US. And it, it's a less sort of embattled um, scene over here, which is, well, we're more fortunate in that sense as women. But um, but so, so it wasn't a sort of difficult conversation, but a lot of the women and the men in my college wanted to know what I thought. And, and so I thought, well, I really should do some more research on it and happened to start with 1 Corinthians 11 and then realised that I'd opened a can of worms and <laughs> even beginning to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, you know that it was it, I mean it genuinely people think it is the most difficult set of verses in the whole bible some people would say and I I, I think I might agree with that probably um and I'm really glad that you asked. Uh, so I started my research and have actually never stopped on, on that those set of verses because they're kind of endlessly fascinating and, and troubling and puzzling and all sorts of things. Um, but I'm glad you started there, Lynn, with the, with the verse uh, with verse seven because as I as I moved deeper and deeper into my research, um, I began to think that actually that verse seven is the most problematic verse in the in the whole set of verses which run from 2 to 16 if anyone's looking them up um which are all to do with uh head coverings for women in the public assembly when they pray or prophesy and and men being in the public assembly without anything covering their heads and the, so this and this is the rationale that's given is in verse 7 which and one of the things that I always want to kind of press people on is to say, but surely when you read this text, you can't turn back to me and say this is just a cultural is scenario here. You make a really strong point. Go ahead, and I'd love you to uh, flesh this out a little bit because I if, if maybe just summarize for our listeners what the typical interpretation is, and then how you push with uh, a theological framework uh, that you think Paul is using here? Mm. Yeah, so I, well, I obviously I've read and read and read and read many different biblical scholars' understanding of what is going on. And, and I, what I found so interesting, really, is that all scholars resort to a potential scenario, you know, so all, all scholars will end up saying, oh, one, you know, one can just imagine, or I could imagine, or you might be able to imagine, you know, so I was thinking, well, what would I, what do, how do I imagine this playing out in the, you know, in the public assembly with all these people in Corinth? And, um, and my imagination didn't take me where theirs took their, them, you know, and I, and partly because I read the text and I thought, but here, if this is Paul, he, he's giving a very clear theological rationale for why men shouldn't be covered and why women should be covered in the presence of men. So, you know, not just that you should be covered because if you go out without head covering, that would be shameful, which would have been true for some of the women who lived um, in Corinth, but not all of them, as you well know, you know, as you, you've also written on these subjects very helpfully. And to, in fact, women were in very different socioeconomic worlds, weren't they? And, and some had a lot of freedom, some were in dreadful, dire situations. Um, so the idea that there would be one blanket rule, it, it, 
in within Greco-Roman Corinth, which was very Roman, um, that the Christians, that Paul thought the Christians should stick to in order not to offend society. I The more I looked into the text, the more I thought, well, he might have thought about that, but that's not what this text is telling us. And so I wanted to kind of expose the weakness of that argument, because if all we do, I think, is to expose the weakness of the arguments, that would be a good thing because this text has been used um, to keep women in their place uh, for centuries. And actually it shouldn't be because it's it, it's opaque. It's an obscure text. And so then the other, so then I actually subsequently to Women in Worship and Unveiling Paul's Women, I, I wrote an article on the reception history of verse seven which is published in Priscilla Papers, because, well, like you picked up on, you know, I was so pleased you said, well, let's talk about verse seven, because I thought verse seven's the real sticking point. And we should do that. We should dig into that, you know. And and what I realised was that over the centuries, it's always been a sticking point. Nobody has read it. No, no serious Christian scholar or churchman or churchwoman has read it and thought oh that's okay you know we're all we're all fine with that 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 everyone's realized there's a hiccup and and they've tried to explain it away in lots of different ways and um and i understand that and even recently i remember reading colin gunton on something completely different and he just threw away this line well paul's exegesis and theology in this verse is questionable he says and I thought, well, you know, we all believe the Bible, but he says that. So what are we going to do with that? So that was my journey. And I ended up doing something completely different with it, which is to ascribe it to Paul's opponents in Corinth, which I think makes more sense of the text. And and that's a brilliant argument. And you, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. And you, you extend your argument, not just in verse or, or in chapter 11, but through chapter 14, all of that talking about how they are praying and prophesying in their in their community. We can stay at least in, in uh, chapter 11, but could you talk a little bit more about this idea that Paul's actually reciting back to the Corinthians their own words and then arguing against them? Mm. I... Yes, well, so the more I studied this particular passage, obviously I studied the whole book and and dug in a bit more to the idea that there are a number of quotes in the letter. There, I, I think there are probably more than maybe appear in some most of our Bibles today. Um, and scholarship is taking things in that direction a bit more. Um, there's some work been done on 8 and 10, for instance, about the idols and whether um, whether there are a few more Corinthian ideas in those chapters that we that, that we haven't yet identified. And um, and so once I had sort of picked up on this thread of that Paul was, of course, responding to a letter that they had already written to him. So he's he's got their phrases and ideas in his mind when he and maybe Sosthenes are, you know, crafting this reply. 
and 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 they would have known what they had written to him i mean they knew what they they knew what they'd said and so he didn't need to signal to them oh you said this i didn't say this you know um that's an excellent that, point because you're right in chapter seven verse one he says now to matters about which you wrote and then mm -hmm. you'll see other times eight one you know now concerning yep so mm -hmm. there are signals a few signals that he gives um that make it absolutely clear he's responding to them yep yes a bit and sometimes he doesn't actually give you a signal that he's quoting them like everything is permissible um you know so so that's debatable is that theirs is that his phrase most people think it's their phrase um you know, even the idea about there is uh, there is no God. You know, an idol is, is is nothing. Is that Paul? Is that them? I mean, that's an interesting question. So, so we're debating the text. It's and this is an ongoing conversation. So I kind of threw into that conversation that I think that there is a longer section in between verse four and verse ten that is mostly sort of populated with their ideas with a little bit of Paul thrown in, um, especially I think he's, I think he's pushing their argument to a logical conclusion when he says, well, so, so what, if a woman doesn't cover her head, then she may as well have her head shaved. I actually think that's probably him. Um, and that's a bit of a reductio ad absurdum where he's kind of saying, look, you're saying that it's so heinous a woman to appear without a head covering that she it's it's as if she has shaved her head so if she does turn up without a head covering you're going to shave her head to shame her then you know so i i think that there's a group of men uh dominant and gifted men in corinth and, and that ties i mean that's not just me that scholarship about one corinthians thinks that Paul is addressing a group of men and the text leads us to that uh, rather than, than the women. And, um, and so generally, as we read 1 Corinthians, we should imagine that Paul is finding these men very difficult. And then so I, I found for, to get to 1 Corinthians 11 and suddenly he turns on the women and says, oh, well, they actually you're the ones being really difficult here because you're not wearing your head coverings, um, did not sit with me right, especially as he then supposedly gives this answer that man is the image and glory of God. And so woman in her own capacity as just the glory of man needs to cover herself in order not to shame him and Christ and God and the angels. That's the argument. So I was kind of pushing, I want to push people and say, please give me a good Christian theological underpinning for that argument. And if you can do that, then great, then let's carry on the conversation. But thus far, I, I don't find a really compelling argument. And, and you asked me about my work on the Imago Dei in general, which of course has taken me right back to Genesis again even more and um i don't think genesis gives us any any theological underpinning for an argument like that neither does the rest of scripture so the canon so i think we're stuck with that with those verses yeah hugely so with your um with your interpretation then what 
what you're concluding is that the Corinthian men themselves, or some of those who are dominant and trying to dominate the congregation, they're the ones that are saying a man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. That's their theology coming out, and Paul is pushing uh, back against that. He's refuting that argument. Yes, yes, that's what I, I think that, and I think that they've developed that theology in his absence. And I find uh, Michael Lakey's work, his book, Image and Glory of God, I found it enormously helpful for me in my thinking because Michael thinks that this is all Paul, uh, and but, but really tackles the text for what I think the text says. You know, he, he doesn't fudge any of the issues and he he takes it head on and he says, you know, the text as we have it is drawing on stoic categories of uh, and cosmological understanding of how uh, man and woman relate to one another and the gender inequality that's inherent in the passage and that women clearly are seen to be to have been created somehow inferior to men or, or somehow, you know, sub subordinated to them. Um, and that that's inherent in that the man is the image and glory and so must shine and, uh, you know, be without his head covering and the woman somehow is lacking something and so needs to make up for that by covering herself. Either, and it could be a positive, you know, some people say, oh, no, it's a positive thing that the woman is has this authority on her. But either way, she has to signal, she has to put something on in order to give her that position within the assembly. And again, I'm saying, well, so tell me, you know, give me the Christian theology for that. Then, then I'll, then I'll, you know, understand more what you're getting at. And you don't find that Christian theology anywhere else, do you? When you no. go back to Genesis, right? No, no. And we don't find any other, any other example of this. There's no example of it anywhere else in in any of our other texts, Christian texts. Um, and so I think we should be highly skeptical uh, over this. Yeah. yeah. So with uh, verse 10, then, um, uh, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority on her head because of mm -hmm. the angels. Is that you also are seeing um, that as coming from the um, mouths of the Corinthians? I think so. Yes, I think that. So so I'm I'm open to the idea, you know, some people say well, it's a positive sign you know the head covering is a positive thing and others read it as a as a um negative oppressive sign you know it could be either and in one sense it doesn't actually matter the point is do you do you really think that there is a good theological justification for having to put it on you know is it what sign of authority do you think women have to add to themselves in order to pray or prophesy in the in public? And this is Paul's rhetorical question. You know, do you do you think it's fitting for a woman to pray without a covering on her head? That's his and they question. Are, that's right. And they are praying and they are prophesying. Mm. So oftentimes, you know, even those uh, who want to 
well, those who restrict women's voice in church mm -hmm. uh, and point to this seem to skip over the fact that there's the female voice is spoken. It's, mm -hmm. it's heard in the assembly in authoritative ways, prayer and prophecy. Yes. So where is Paul's voice then here? Does it come in in verse 13 or, or where, where does Paul begin to speak? I think it's in verse 11. So, so I think that he's, I think his voice, I think he's in verse three. So I, I, you know, he says, I praise you for remembering the traditions as I handed them down to you in, in verse two. And, and I think that's genuine. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I, because I think what he's praising them for is for building or, or, or understanding his theology of Kephale, which I, I think is Paul. I mean, you know, he it pops up in Colossians and Ephesians, and I I think that Paul has taught them about a Christian understanding of what it means for the husband to be the Kephale in the household. And Paul, I think Paul has defined that for them. He, I think he has quite strong, definite ideas about what that means for a husband and the, the sort of sacrificial, um, nurturing, empowering role that I think he prescribes for the men. Um, and he does see that linked to the God-Christ relation. Uh, and so... I, I don't, I, I feel like that's a Pauline kind of statement. And he says, well, I praise you for keeping to that. But I think that what they've done, if you look at that theology, the idea that the husband is the kephale of the wife in the way that Christ is the kephale of the husband, or, you know, so you have some kind of progression or some kind of um, principle that is, it is built into these relationships. And um, I think that they've taken an idea like that and then distorted it you know twisted it a bit and said well if the husband's the kephale and he's the image and glory of god then he needs to be prominent you know he needs to be seen uh he he's he comes first i mean it's very normal it, it, we see all this in church today we see it in the church for the last two thousand years that that men have understood uh Christian and and their sort of Jewish background to give them some sense that they are superior to women. So the yes, you're as you point about chapter. Uh, I'm sorry, verse three in chapter eleven. I I mean I just I've always been taught that that's a hierarchical. Mm -hmm. He's talking about hierarchical arrangements and mm -hmm. kephale translation head. Um, you're saying that's that's not what's going on there. There's there's a different sort of whether we translate man as man or husband, husband you can yeah. do either, you know, mm -hmm. in the in the Greek. Um, so if it's not hierarchical, then then what's fill out just a little bit more. I know you were getting at it, but fill out just a little bit more. What does that mean that mm. uh, God is the kephale of Christ mm. and that, you know? I, it's, it's hard, Lynn, I think, for, you know, as you know, there's just so much debate about this and, and so many, and it's heated and actually quite fractious. So, uh, you know, it's difficult, but I, 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 my feeling is that it has something to do with provenance 
and and yes preeminence and some kind of first principle this is what i what i was reading chrysostom that's what chrysostom thinks that so they would have i think would have understood and paul would have understood that the son is somehow in the father you know like john describes that the son is in the bosom of the father and the early church fathers really took that idea and you know really developed it that the son kind of emanates or is eternally begotten from the father and and so there is a sense in which the father is the first principle of the godhead um, but that doesn't compromise the co-equality of the Son and the Spirit with the Father. So they would have hold, held those two things together very, very tightly. And and I think what's tra a tragedy has been those two things have been disconnected and the emphasis has been on, on the hierarchy rather than, which was not a, understood as being within the Trinity by the early church. You know, there no, was no hierarchy. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned Chrysostom or Christostom. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, fill out for our listeners just a little bit more of uh, of that, because I think he really does capture what you're um, what you're also talking about. Well, I think, yes. Yeah, so in the early church, the first sort of few hundred years of the church, they were obviously trying to work out the very much the two natures of Christ. You know, how is Jesus the God-man? They had massive Christological issues they were dealing with. And and the Trinity, how how do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how are they one, really? That was their big problem before them to try and articulate. And and so they they held to two principles, and one was the monarchy of the Father, uh, the sole rule in that sense, um, but the co-equality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so the monarchy was not seen in any way to undermine the co-equality and co-eternity of the three persons of the Godhead. And, and I think that's where we get, we, we've got some distortion in modern theology um, on that point. And so just to come back to your, uh, your original question of, the, you know, where does Paul come in? I think it's verse 11, because this is, he comes in with this, with this word plen you know which it, it, and mostly when we read that in the new testament it tells us that there's a shift of thinking you know oh well nevertheless but you know no this is i'm going in this direction now or it, you know it's a sense of a shift and and so you hear this word plen and you think oh wait he's now he's shifting you to somewhere nevertheless but it, but i'm trying to tell you you know, that man is not independent of woman, nor woman independent of man. And so he then brings it, so having started with the, you know, man or the husband is the Catholic, I actually think he's referring to married relations, but who knows, we don't know. So say he says that so the husband is the head of the wife and um, and then he comes back to, this idea that man and woman are codependent, interdependent, and that just as woman comes out of man, so man comes through woman, he says. And so he's he's showing them that even if you, you know, even if you take this idea that somehow woman is derived from man or the wife is derived from the husband or whatever, you know. And I actually think Paul probably does think about something like that. But even so, every man that has ever been born has come through a woman. 
and so depends upon a woman for his life you know and i think paul brings them back to that and says come on guys you know this is why the does it matter yeah, yeah. And, and that's really the thing why does it matter why what's the big deal for paul why couldn't he he's dealing with a lot of issues in Corinth. Why does he bring this up? Why does it mm. matter so much that they get this right? Mm. That they they need to see the equality of husband and wife, of man and woman within the church and not the skewed version that they're promoting. Yes, well, and that's such an interesting question because that takes you right back to 1 Corinthians 7, which, you know, and then you have the, because he had, he, he has a whole chapter on marriage and relationships and virginity and, you know, how an engagement and it, he, he just kind of throws himself into the whole conversation, you know, of, of how are you all relating to each other? And it's quite a sort of, I don't know. I mean, I find it really fascinating. It's quite a sort of earthy conversation, you know, because it starts off with, oh, it's not good for a man to, well, really a husband to touch a wife. It's not good for them to be sleeping together. Well, he's, and then he goes on to address that and says, yes, of course it is. If you're married, you're supposed to be together and you can't abstain from those relationships until, you know, unless you're doing that to pray and all of those things. So he, so he, he addresses I think it matters because their relationships are disordered and there's some sort of disordered relationship between the men and the women in some way. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he's addressing men who are going to prostitutes and he's saying, you can't go and do that. If you, You've got to understand if you go and do that, you're uniting your body with that prostitute, you know. And so he's dealing with sexual disorder. He's dealing with inequality in, relation, in marriage um, that I think is probably detrimental to the woman. I'm imagine, you know, I'm sort of seeing, because first of all, in 1 Corinthians 6, it's that he's not addressing women, he's addressing men. They're going to prostitutes. And then you get this strange verse, you know, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. So were they, were they, you know, refusing? I don't know. You just don't know who, who is, who is thinking that's a good idea. Is that the men or the women? You don't know. No. And I, you know, as um, prostitution uh, typically is the objectification of one body by another, uh, the uh, perpetrator and uh, or the client mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, and you look back at uh, back past um, chapter 11 and you get to chapter 14 and they have um, everyone falling over each other speaking in tongues and too chaotic for Paul feeling like uh, you know everyone is vying for position. I, mm -hmm. I imagine them kind of elbowing, you know, to try and get heard. And, uh, and so I wonder if part of the disorder, as you're talking about, um, that, it, that a key um, example or a key reflection or symptom of a kind of disorder is to have uh, a domination or a hierarchy, a negative hierarchy within a marriage situation, that that's, that's a, that can be one serious expression of 
of the disordered relationship that can permeate the church and human relationships mm -hmm. and that the gospel speaks against, right? That the Absolutely. gospel speaks against all of this. And so the it, it matters to Paul because we're one in Christ. It matters mm -hmm. to Paul because there's a, there's a mutuality and a reciprocity mm -hmm. that that we have to live into if we're going to be faithful to the call of God mm -hmm. on our life. And that's why this matters so much. Mm -hmm. um, Which you know, is what he mm -hmm. says about the wife has authority over her husband's body, which, you know, we, we all know that's a very unusual statement yes. for a first yes. century man. Oh, yes. I, you know, when you were talking earlier about imagining things, um, and I imagine when this letter is read to the congregation mm. and they're all listening, mm. you know, and Paul uh, and, and whoever's reading it comes to verse three, the husband, um, uh, let's see the, yeah, the wife does not have authority over her <laughs> own body, but yields it to her husband. That's verse four of uh, chapter seven. And everybody's yawning. Cause that's just, of course, that's what we, mm. but in the same way, the husband is not of authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And I think a couple of hands shot up <laughs> said, mm. excuse me, can you repeat that? Mm. I, I think you got that wrong. You know, <laughs> I think they're there. They needed some, uh, <laughs> I definitely think that. And I, and I think it's interesting because I've been, I've been reading a bit more on sort of some ancient texts and there's no doubt and I know you bring this out in your work that there's there's no doubt that there were some very loving mutual marriages in the ancient world you know they were they weren't all awful um but there were also some pretty awful marriages and if you think that girls of 13 were marrying men in their 40s you know um that's that's setting up a really unequal dynamic and, and so you imagine that there might have been some marriages of people sitting and listening, Priscilla and Aquila, and they would have been going, oh, this is so wonderful because, you know, this is our marriage. And then some little girl who has some 40-year-old husband, and here this letter says, well, you also have authority over your husband's body. I mean, that is radical. Oh, it's, it is absolutely radical. Mm. Um, you know, so I... Uh, I had mentioned earlier, and I want to make sure we get to some of your most recent work that hasn't been published yet on image of God. Mm. And you look at, um, well, I, I've seen a draft and it, I, I'm just so excited for it to come out. It's really <laughs> going to be spectacular. And, uh, but I, yes, but I, I, uh, you recognize that so much of what's written about image of God comes from a patriarchal, from a Western, from a white mm -hmm. perspective. And there's a lot of things that um, kind of creep in or serve as a substrata of the debate that, that you put a spotlight on, which is great. But I, I'd love to just, for now, talk about the androcentrism mm. um, that, um, that you find um, in, in the whole imagining this mm -hmm. image of God that women and men bear. Can you talk a little bit about your your own conclusions as it relates to women in this mm. debate about the image of God? Yes. Yeah, so as well, it was a it was a sort of new field for me to research a bit in more depth, and I really appreciated being able to do that, and I enjoyed looking at the the more sort of systematic and 
philosophical understandings and then the biblical scholars who are really quite take a very different view and um, and then going through the centuries a little bit and realizing that the what is set up right at the beginning in Genesis 1 26 to 27 about male and female being made in the image and likeness of God gets often got, got lost as the church sort of developed this doctrine and uh, and actually going back to 1 Corinthians 11, 7, this one phrase seemed to carry uh, a sort of an inordinate amount of weight in, in, in the development of this doctrine. Because in the New Testament, the well, as you know, but the every other reference to image, to icon in the New Testament is in relation to Christ. Um, and this is the only one, this verse, the only one that we have where it, it's assigned to man. And um, and so really, if we bracket, so let's bracket 1 Corinthians 11, 7, even whatever we think about, let's bracket it because it's an anomaly in that sense. The, uh, it, Paul, the New Testament, sorry, is trying to tell us that the image, the icon of God is embodied in Jesus Christ. And... So, of course, that lends itself to androcentrism. So the story does, and I talk about this in Rediscovering Scripture's Vision. I begin with it, actually, that the Christian story um, is weighted towards androcentrism and the, the because Jesus is a male and Jesus has 12 male disciples and we use male words for God. But as we go into the, the all the other narratives that are, overlaid and underlaid around this through the scriptures it's very clear that this genesis 1 26 and 27 about male and female made in the image and likeness of god is is meant to be the sort of heartbeat that goes through the whole of scripture and the whole of church history to tell women that they also are made in the image and likeness of God. And when you when you realize that, you know, when when that sort of dawns on you as a woman and you uh, the, what churchmen have done to this doctrine just becomes, you know, utterly tragic. And and then of course there were other horrible injustices done. Uh, because this was picked up from uh, around white men, you know, that somehow the white people or European people were more in the image. So once they had opened the door to the idea that there might be an inequality, you know, that maybe the male was a more, a better image than the female, then that lent itself to then say, well, then the white male is a better image than any other person and, and all other races. And so, you know, there's been great wickedness done um, out of distorted theology, which of course we know is a, you know, is always a possibility. I love the image of the heartbeat, the heartbeat that goes through scripture. I love that metaphor, that image that women can can grab hold of. Is there a, a final word that you would love to to share about image uh, that that our listeners um, can take uh, take to heart. <laughs> yeah, I so well as you know, I'm by by um, training. I'm a systematic theologian, and I 
my favorite thing to teach on is the incarnation and so i i think for us as women the the person who orientates us to god is jesus and yes he is a man but but when i go back to the stories of how he treats women you know when i if 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 ever a woman is is having doubts or has you know had has been abused or oppressed or or just badly treated or diminished in church circles you know i i feel like i want to say please just immerse yourself in the stories of jesus and what how he treated women you know go back and and just read those for for weeks you know just let them sink in to your heart and your mind and and let them tell you who you are in god's eyes you know because that's that that's what i think that the the gospels speak to us of those things and actually how precious those women were to jesus and how central they were to his story uh, his mother and the women who traveled with him and the women who he appeared to and the women who he gave his greatest secrets to you know and um i i think that that yeah that's just a wonderful thing and that tells us who god is and what he thinks of women Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. I love your research. I'm excited for uh, the new book to come out, but um, I also want to just encourage women to pick up what you've already, well, women and men, <laughs> pick up what you've already uh, written because you're just able to illuminate aspects of scripture and um, and our lives as believers uh, in such wonderful ways. Thanks for taking time to talk with us here on the Alabaster Jar. Oh, it was great fun. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar. In today's conversation, Dr. Lynn Kohick has been speaking with Dr. Lucy Pepia. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we encourage you to go and read Lucy's most recent book, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts from InterVarsity Press. And we invite you to join us right back here again next week for another conversation on issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry.